Christ crucified. That's our title of our message this morning, and it's we're looking at John chapter 19, verses 16 through 27. So if you'll take your Bibles, please, and I'm going to read for that. If you would mind standing for that also. Actually, I'm going to begin at the the, uh, the there's a break, actually a paragraph break right in the middle of the, of that 16th verse. So they took Jesus. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us tear it. Not, excuse me, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garment among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. From Psalm 22, we read this morning, verse 18. So the soldiers did these things. Notice the paragraph began, so the soldiers, so they took Jesus. And now we have this kind of the same thing. So the soldiers did these things. What? The things that were above. But, standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciples the, the disciple took her to his own home. Thank you. You may be seated. This account of the crucifixion here uh, is interesting. John omits details that are found in the other Gospels, but he adds other details that are not found in them. And I believe for one reason, and that is to show the glory of Jesus Christ. In no place is this more obvious than the events of the crucifixion. 
And one of the th facts that we need to really under, uh, consider is that Jesus was fully in control of the entire situation. He was a victim by no sense of the word. It wasn't that uh, he tried to get them to uh, follow him and they decided not to and then he was just helplessly taken as a victim and crucified. Oh no, he came to be crucified from the cradle. That was his purpose in coming into this world was to come to this hour. For he, Jesus said, for to this hour I, I came into this world and to and that's why he was there now. And it's interesting how he played Pilate and the Jews against each other in the trial, revealing their true natures. What did we find of, of Pilate? He was a weak and a fearful man, yielding to the mob, because he was terrified that an uprising would occur that would put him in jeopardy with the uh, authorities in Rome. And sound like politics to, politicians today. More interested in, in uh, keeping peace than they are in doing what's right. On the other hand, you have the Jews who expose their hatred for God and their apostasy from His ways. However, these things worked for good. And that was the redemption and salvation of God's people. And nowhere is this fact of Christ's supremacy more evident than in the sign that Moses, excuse me, that Pilate, where did I get Moses? That Pilate had affixed to the cross. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. That's verse 19. Inscriptions were placed on crosses to reveal the crimes for which the individuals were being crucified. And I, I'm going to explain a little bit more about this in, later in the message, but the charge here that was written discloses God's purpose and to use what the world regards as a tragedy. Here's a, here's, this is, I think, an important statement. You look at the crucifixion of Jesus and you say, that's an awful tragedy. God says, no, it wasn't. That's a step in my plan to the ultimate glory of Jesus Christ seated at the right hand of majesty and ruling and reigning forever. He's the king of the Jews. The charge is accurate. They crucified him for, for being an insurrectionist. Yes, he is the ultimate insurrectionist. And he's going to put down every rule. Oh, I'm looking forward to that day. Every rule and authority. He beat them in the spiritual war first and then in the physical outcome of that spiritual war. Then that Jesus was in control of his circumstances and not a victim is also revealed by the number of Old Testament scriptures that were fulfilled. Over and over again in the, in the crucifixion account, 
This happened in order that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets. Do you think that these things just incidentally and accidentally occurred? Absolutely not. The plan for which the Son of God uh, to die on the cross was established in eternity. And we see that in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 to 20. Knowing that you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or, or spot, the foreshadowing, for he was foreknown, and foreknown doesn't, doesn't mean God just looked down a quarter of time and saw that it would happen and then said, okay, I'm going to let it happen like that. No, no, foreknown means he determined it in eternity past. Before the foundation of the world, and then manifested, it was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you. Wow. So this morning I want to consider two points. And if you go back to verse number 24, here we see this. So the soldiers did these things. And then we read, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and so on. Four women and John. Now, what's interesting here is the Greek syntax plays these two things against each other. The soldiers did this, but... See? So, in effect, we're reading here, so the soldiers, on the one hand, did these things, but on the other hand, standing by, were, and so on, etc. So, we want to look at that. So, my first point is the crucifixion of the king, what the soldiers did. Now, just carrying out orders, these men, uh, we don't know their hearts. Maybe they, some of them did have an evil intent. But when the palace people, the palace guard, turned, had flogged him and humiliated him, uh, they turned him over then to four soldiers. That We know there were four soldiers because they parted his garments to give each one his garments part of his garments. So these four soldiers then were the agents that God used to put the Son of God to death. And here's an, an important fact of the matter is they were not Jews. These were Roman soldiers who did these things, crucifying the Lord of glory. We read Pilate, he, Pilate, delivered him over to them the soldiers, to be crucified. These, this quartet of soldiers to be crucified. So they, the soldiers, took, took charge of Jesus. That's what the idea of took means. They took charge of Jesus. There in verse number 16. Mark 15, 15 states that Pilate first released Barabbas, then had Jesus flogged before turning him over to the soldiers in charge of crucifying the condemned criminals, particularly those who were uh, the enemies of the state. So these soldiers had a specific job. They, they, they did not crucify Roman citizens. No. Crucifying was pretty much limited to Enemies of the state. 
Think about that. Jesus is regarded as an enemy of the state and hung between two enemies of the state. I'm going to point that out here in a minute. So Jesus was flogged, turned over to these soldiers in charge of crucifying these enemies of the state. And then so Matthew chapter 20 verse 19 records that Jesus' prediction that the Jews would turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, and crucified. The fact here presented is the design here for which the Jews use agents to accomplish their will concerning Jesus. And this pattern has not changed after the resurrection. You see that in the book of Acts and throughout the writings of the apostles. Nor has it changed in the years since. Here's, a, here's an interesting fact. The Jews particularly have an animosity against Jesus and that animosity, because it can't get to Jesus, has been then focused upon his followers. And this is why Jesus said to, the, to his disciples, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will pers also persecute you. Well, we know they persecuted Jesus. So, believer, understand that you're going to be persecuted. Now, it may not be the... Uh, Jews that will persecute you, it'll be it will likely be Gentiles. But no one thing: when the persecution occurs, it will be Jews behind the Gentiles that persecuted you. That is a fact, and it is borne out in history. See, Jesus. Why did why did the Jews hate Jesus? Now, this is the question: Why did they hate Jesus? And Jesus answered that question there in uh, John 15, verses 22 and 23. If I had not come and spoken the truth, the idea there is the truth to them, they would ha not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. See? The same pattern that was, was back there in the uh, wilderness was in Jesus' day as well. What they did under Moses, they're now doing with Christ. And he said, that now, if I hadn't come and told them the truth, they would have no reason to feel guilty. But now they have heard and they, and, uh, they have no excuse for their sins. So whoever hates me, hates my Father also. They said, oh, we, we believe in, in, the, in God the, of, the God of heaven. Jesus said, no, you don't. You don't, you don't believe in him. <coughs> if you believed in him, if you trusted him, then you would also receive me. And of course, he explained, your, your father's the devil, and the lusts of your father, the will of your father, you will do. So one, one needs only investigate the people who have worked throughout history to destroy the church, the gospel, and New Testament truth. History. We don't, you know, you don't get that in school. The teacher is not going to take a history book and open it and tell you, uh, 
here is the history of the world and what underlines history, underlies the whole history of the earth to this present day is the hatred of people for God and Christ and, the, and His people and the truth. But that's it. Who controls government? Who controls the media, both news and entertainment and commerce? All you have to do is just look into it. Understanding that the Jews hate God and want to destroy His kingdom is not anti-Semitic. But merely noting who pursues such goals. Jesus explained that the Jews were doing their father's desires. John 8.44 Jesus also warned the truth in uh, the church in Samaria. Smyrna, excuse me. Smyrna. I know your tribulation and your poverty. But you are rich. The slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Who is the cause of the suffering? The Jews in, in Smyrna. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested for ten days. You will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Boy, that, that reference has been in my mind here since I wrote these words just about every all the time since. This is what he wants of us. He wants us just to be faithful, to trust him, to believe that he, that he's in charge, that he that he has a plan, that no matter how bad things look, he's in control, and that we're to be faithful even to the point of dying. Because he says he's going to give us a crown of life. Jesus did not die just to set an example. But he did set an example. He died to redeem his own. But in his suffering and death, he also set an example that we should follow. Christ's followers must be, must be really concerned about compromise of loving peace over the truth. And I really believe this is one of the great problems of, of many modern churches is for the sake of, of popularity, for the sake of keeping their crowds, for the sake of, of, uh, of keeping the money coming in. They have compromised the truth for peace. Believers are to stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. So we read there in Ephesians 6 and verse 14. Jesus warned also, whoever does not take his cross and follow me. Cross is not a burden. It's a picture here of Jesus bearing his cross, like Paul, I mean, John tells us here. Just like Jesus submitted himself and took up his cross to go be crucified, he said, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me, and whoever finds his life will lose it. In other words, I'm going to compromise. I'm not going to take that cross. I'm going to live for myself so that I can find a life. He said, you're not going to keep it. You're going to lose it. 
But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's Matthew 10, 38 and 39. He, then he repeated that again in Matthew 16, verses 24 through 26. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what it, will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? So the reward then for standing firm for truth and righteousness is found in verse number 27. The Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. And this is why the cross was necessary. So number two, why did John omit uh, any reference to Simon of Cyrene, whom the soldiers ordered to carry the cross? In Mark 15, verse 21, we read, they compelled a, a bypasser, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming from the in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Is there a, a, is there a contradiction here? It says, Jesus went forth bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull. Well, I don't think there's a, uh, there is a, uh, there's possibly a couple of explanations. One of them is that Jesus, because of his condition, found it difficult to carry it fully. So Simon the Cyrene came in to help him carry it or to take it off his shoulders after he had gone a certain place or possibly carry part of it as maybe it was put together at the site of the crucifixion. So he carried one part and Simon carried another. We don't know for the, for the certain, but I believe the purpose of John's writing is to emphasize he went out bearing his own cross. Just like he asks for you and me to do. Pick up your cross and follow me. And there's a couple of, I think, a couple of reasons for the omission in John. First of all, is one of them is theological. John was written late in the first century, and it may have been to have avoided a very grievous Gnostic error that's found in second century Gnostic commentaries. Uh, one by the, uh, by the name of Basilides, or Basilides, however you pronounce it. That commentary states that Simon of Cyrene was actually crucified in the place of Jesus. And it became an error in the churches in that time, and that error was taken up by the Muslims and, and held to this day. They do not believe Jesus was ever crucified, that somebody was crucified in his place, Simon of Cyrene. So John omits it here because he doesn't want you to be confused. And, there, and I believe it's more likely that John's purpose was here was to focus on the humiliation of the Son of God in this thing. The image of Jesus carrying his own cross reminds the reader of Isaac carrying wood for his own sacrifices commanded by God in Genesis chapter 22 verse 6. 
So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, a type of Christ. And he took his hand, in his hand, the fire and knife, and they both went them together. Jesus carried his own instrument of death. Then thirdly, John also focuses on the place where Jesus was taken to be crucified, to Golgotha, or Golgotha. Golgotha is an English transliteration of the Greek, which is a translation of the Aramaic, which means a skull, likely due to the appearance of the place. Or perhaps there are skulls littered around there. I don't, I don't know why. But the, uh, tra- the Latin translation is Calvaria or Calvary, which also means skull due to its... So the site here is uncertain. I, I, and I, I'll just throw this in for you. I strongly hold to the place that Jesus was crucified on, on, to the northern wall of Jerusalem there just outside the northern wall of Jerusalem we know he was crucified outside the camp but the place there there's, there's a church there now called the church of the holy sepulcher and in the basement of that church there is a tomb that has been for centuries said to be the tomb where Jesus Christ was laid. I believe that is the historic place. Not Gordon's Calvary and not the garden tomb that is so popular today among evangelicals. I just don't believe that's the place. I, I believe it's the place because we know that, that right outside that wall there were Romans crucified people. And we also know that it was on a main road into the city. And they did it there for the reason of setting an example. Watch, look at these people. You better be careful that you don't join them. And we know that Simon the Cyrene, for example, was coming into town when Jesus was carrying his cross to the place. And so they... They conscripted him. They said, here, get in there and help, help him. So, not I, I reject Gordon's Calvary and the site now generally accepted by many. And it's, notice verse 18. There they crucified him. Crucifixion is the cruelest form of torture and death ever devised by humans. I think Satan himself devised it. It was public and humiliating, degrading the victim who was stripped naked after being beaten to a bloody pulp and then hung to suffer in the hot sun for hours. Imagine being affixed to a cross and then being put up like right there and being able to breathe. So every time you wanted to take a breath, you had to push yourself up on your legs, which were nailed to the cross, which, it, which would cause excruciating pain. But your, your, your whole being is crying for air. I've got to breathe. I need to live. 
it was horrible. So what they did then is they put a block right underneath the feet so that uh, it would aid the, the individual even though it was still excruciatingly painful for him to, to lift his body, but to lift the body to be able to breathe and that prolonged the suffering. They didn't make it easy for you to die on a cross. They wanted to torture you for hours, even days. Whoa. Then verse 18 also informs us that Jesus was crucified and with him two others. And this fulfills scripture. Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 12, it says he was numbered with the transgressors. All four Gospels give the same account. Matthew and Mark called the other, called the other two men lestai, lestai in the Greek. That's translated guerrilla fighters. That's the same word that's used to describe Barabbas in John 18.40. Only Luke informs us of the repentance and the salvation of the one. In Luke chapter 23, verse, uh, verses 40 to 43. But the other rebuked him, saying, The other rebuked, the one was saying, you're, If you're the Son of God, why don't you save, you save yourself and us too? But the other rebuked him, saying, Do, not, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deed. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Isn't that amazing? This fellow was on a cross. He didn't, he didn't have time to go to church. He couldn't get, he couldn't get baptized. <laughs> he couldn't do anything. But Jesus said, you're, you're going to be with me today. Now, fourthly, and I think of more important focus here in John's account of the crucifixion is the inscription that Pilate wrote and posted on Jesus' cross. This is verses 19 to 22. But Pilate wrote an inscription Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And as we pointed out in the introduction, such postings were common, bearing the description of the crime committed by the one being crucified. Pilate, no doubt, wrote on this, this to, dis, to despite the Jews, which is clear by their reaction. They didn't want that description to be there. They wanted it to say, he said he was the king of the Jews. He made a claim. We don't agree with that claim. So the Jews insisted that the governor condemn an innocent man and threaten him that if he did not. In other words, you won't be Caesar's friend if you don't put this man to death. You're not Caesar's friend and we're going to see to it that Caesar hears about it too. So Pilate unwillingly aided God's purpose. Pilate said he's innocent. Pilate tried hard to let him go. Psalm 
Psalm 96.10 Psalm 96.10 says, Say among the nations, The Lord reigns. Now here's what's interesting about that passage. Jesus was the king of the Jews. In addition, Pilate wrote this inscription in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. I think as a symbolic proclamation that Jesus was not just the king of the Jews, he was the king of all nations. Just as 96 predicts, Psalm 96 predicts. I like what commentator F.F. Bruce wrote. The crucified one is the true king, the kingliest king of all. Because it is he who is stretched on a cross, he turns an obscene argument of torture into a throne of glory. I like that. And reigns from the tree. Bruce points out that this theme of Christ reigning from a tree was very popular among second century Christians. And that was due to the fact that the Septuagint version of the Old Testament psalm reads, Say among the nations, the Lord reigns from the tree. Wow. Finally, John notes that when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his garments for spoil. This, here again, this you see is a battle. A war is going on here. We have soldiers taking spoil, which indicates they believed themselves to be the victors in the battle. In fact, in ancient days, a man joined the army. He didn't get paid by the state. He got paid when they won battles and they got to take the spoils home. And if you were good soldiers and led by good commanders and you were victorious in many battles, you could be very rich. So here we see that played out again traditionally. As Spoils of war were the reward of a successful battle. The clothing of the criminal was also considered spoil for the executioner. They had won a battle. Thus we read, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. They saw their actions as victorious. God saw them as otherwise. And John gives us an, an interesting detail to show his sovereignty in the matter. This was to fulfill the scripture. <laughs> and Psalm 22, verse 18, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now that was originally written of David. And David was in a struggle. But David is the, is the type of Jesus Christ as well. So here is, an, here is another psalm. The symbolism here is for the tunic. And here's an interesting thing that, that many people don't understand. The high priest wore a tunic woven of one piece from top to bottom. 
Just like the tunic Jesus wore to the cross. They said, we're not going to tear this apart. Let's cast lots for it. But here's another interesting thing. It tells us that Jesus was appointed high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. As the author of Hebrews wrote, Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And here's the, here's the interesting thing. That phrase is used of Christ's eternal generation as the Son of God, but it is also used of his resurrection after his crucifixion. And I believe that's the way it's used here. A reference to the resurrection that would come because of the crucifixion. As he says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What, what is that, what's that say? It says that because Jesus was obedient to God and suffered and bled and died, God appointed him a high priest forever, not just for a lifetime, because Jesus can never die again. Think about that. Not like priests, not like uh, Annas, who was appointed high priest, and because of of politics, he was removed from his office and given to his son-in-law, And it's interesting that it was the high priests, John says, the high priests who said, the chief priests. But Christ is a a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And this is also symbolized when Jesus laid aside his outer garments to prepare to wash the feet of the disciples in the 13th verse, in the 13th chapter, excuse me as an act of humiliating himself in anticipation of the cross. That's why Peter had such a problem. However, at the cross, he didn't lay aside his garments. He was stripped of his garments. And paradoxically, this was his means of glorification. So Paul explains in Philippians 2, he humbled himself in obedience even to the point of death. And because of this, God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. So ultimately, John here points to the Father's sovereign care of Jesus in the fact that his tunic was preserved untorn. We read in Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but every, but it's very decision is from the Lord they cast lots so as not to tear that garment this garment speaks of the character and of the righteousness of Christ the best robe and because of Christ I wear his robe of righteousness that brings us to the second thing the cross and the bystander as stated in the beginning of the message, the Greek syntax of these two verses, 24 and 25. So the soldiers did these things, but play the two things against each other, the soldiers and the bystanders. John tells us that the bystanders by the cross were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleopas and Magdalene. Now, in the, in the Greek here, I just want to exp- explain something. 
In the Greek here, it could easily read his mother and his mother's sister, who was Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. That'd be three women. Got a problem, though, and it raises confusion. First, Matthew chapter 27, verses 56, and Mark chapter 16, verse 40 and 41, have the women standing far off. They were not near. Was John then mistaken or did he fabricate this? And of course it's very possible, and I think it's what happened, they just simply moved closer. So that in Christ's final moments, they were right there. And this is only a problem to those who want a problem. Second, the number and identification of the women is an issue. Some argue for three women, Mary, the sister, his sister, and Mary Magdalene. Uh, or Mag and the Mary of Magdala, that's where she was from. The problem here is that Mary's sister would be identified as Mary. How many times do you find two Marys in the same family? I don't think so. No, I think it was, uh, it's four women. Two are named and one is unnamed. Here, Mary, the mother of Jesus, her sister, who is unnamed, but we know her to be Salome, the mother of James and John, the, wrote, the man that wrote this book, the sister of Mary. Then, then uh, Mary, the, the wife of Cleopas, the mother uh, of uh, James and Joseph, and then Fourthly, Mary, Mary of Magdala, out of whom Jesus cast the seven demons. So it's very, very likely here John was the nephew of the mother of Jesus, which explains why Jesus placed her in his charge. He's a relative. But what's puzzling is where were her sons? We know she had sons. Of course, the Roman Catholics like to pick up on that one, that Mary was a, an eternal virgin. She never had any other sons but, but Jesus. Strangely here, John mentions nothing of the grief and wailing of the women as would be expected. But then finally, and here's my last point, the main, and the main focus of, I believe, this section is the compassion that Jesus shows even from the cross. In the midst of his personal suffering, he regards his mother and puts her in the care of the disciple John. But I think there's more to it than that. And A, uh, Arthur Pink, I love Pink, argues that the term woman, he says, woman, behold your son. It's not harsh, nor is it discourteous. But I do believe what it does, it ends their relation, human relationship. She is no longer his mother. She's no longer his mother. So Mary is not no longer the mother of God. And I think that is very important. Unlike the Roman error of deifying Mary, 
Scripture exalts her only in the sense that she was chosen of God to bring the Son of God into the world and now and forever she was to be just like all other followers of Jesus, simply a follower of Jesus. Now let me give you a couple of lessons from this. Number one, everything about this scene of Christ's crucifixion and death points to its power and glory. That's why Paul said he cherished the cross. He gloried in the cross. Not not the stake of wood, but in what accomplished what was accomplished on that cross in the sac- in the sacrifice of Christ. Secondly, Jesus is king and lord. Nobody makes him so. He either reigns in hope and salvation or he reigns in judgment and damnation. He reigns he was raised from the dead, exalted to the right hand of the of the majesty, and he reigns there today. And the question is, is he reigning in your life? Then Paul gloried in the cross, as I pointed out in uh, Galatians 6, 14 and 15. Be far, uh, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything or uncircumcision, but a new creation. And here he, and I wish I could, I wish I had time to take this apart. I don't. But here is here's an important fact. It's not the wood, but the fact of Christ's crucifixion, as opposed to the religion of the Jews with its glory in the flesh. Circumcision. Any religious activity that distracts from his work alone is a grievous error. Not baptism, not church membership, not faithfulness, nothing but the cross of Christ. Nothing but the cross of Christ. He will not share his glory with another. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity that's been ours to consider this this morning. Oh, how the words of Scripture bring light, bring radiance, bring relevance into our lives. Truth shines. And Lord, we buy the truth and sell it not. We hold on fast to the truth and will not let it go. Jesus died for us. For believers. And his death ensures and secures our eternal life with him. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. May he rule and reign in us today. That we take up our cross, deny ourselves, and follow him wherever he leads. Whoever loses his life will gain it. And whoever keeps his life will lose it. But we'll gain it unto everlasting life. And we praise you in Jesus' name.